So hi and welcome to the Microbiology Lab Pod. And this is a new thing for us. We haven't really been doing podcasting before in this lab. And I think it's an exciting opportunity to try something new in these times when we were just stuck at home, all of us anyway. And so this is an idea I've been playing around with for some time that it would be fun to discuss papers and science uh, in the podcast format, um, as opposed to having a more traditional journal club with just the people in the lab. So my name is Johan Bengtsson-Palme. I'm running the uh, Bengtsson-Palme lab, or whatever you would call that, at the Department of the Infectious, of Infectious Diseases in, at the University of Gothenburg. And it's me and my team who will be discussing here today. Uh, we don't really know how this is going to work out because we are not professional podcasters and we don't really aim to be professional podcasters either, but we are all committed to uh, communicate science and to have fun. So this is one of those things where we try out something to see if it's fun and we see, uh, see if we get anyone to listen to what we're saying. Uh, essentially, the format is that we will be discussing papers pretty much like you would in a journal, journal club. And we will be discussing science and academia and how we cope with the life at the university in general. So just to get some sense of where we are in space and time, we're recording this on April 9th. Most of us are staying at home, except for Emil, who has been doing lab work today. We are actually not in a total lockdown in Sweden, as you might be aware. But we are still pretty much affected by the coronavirus that is spreading globally right as we speak. On today's pod, we will, of course, discuss the novel coronavirus and COVID-19. We will also talk about interactions between influenza infections and the respiratory tract microbiome. We will discuss antibiotic resistance in glaciers in uh, the Arctic. We'll talk about how pathway analysis can shed light on Alzheimer's disease. And last but not least, we will also discuss the discovery of not only a new species, but a new genus by some colleagues here at our department. So here with me to discuss today are Emil Burma, who is a student who has been in the lab since September. He is working on uh, interactions in microbial communities and antibiotic resistance and invasion. Emil, how are you doing? I'm doing very good. How are you, Ivan? Very good to see you. You too. Um, how was lab today? Uh, it's pretty good, I guess. I got some pretty nice results, so I'm happy about that. Very nice to hear. Very nice to hear. Uh, I'm also joined by Havila Kanshi, who is uh, also a student in the lab, started in February. Uh, how are you doing, Havila? I'm good. Thank you. So Havila is working on systems biology and pathway analysis, uh, and using that to understand antibiotic resistance in Pseudomonas agrinosa. Your plans changed quite a bit due yes. to the coronavirus as well. Yeah. Uh, so you are really one of those who were affected Thank work plan-wise about this <laughs> pandemic. Yeah. pandemic. Uh, and then finally, I'm also joined by Anna Abramova, who is a postdoc in the lab, who just recently started. You were also pretty impacted about <laughs> impacted from the coronavirus outbreak, right? Yes. Hi. Uh, well, I just started to work, and then uh, one week later, I'm sitting at home <laughs> again. Okay. So is everyone doing doing fine? Yes. Yep. Yes. Very good. So. Just before we jump into this, today's scientific discussions, I mean, these are weird times, as we touched upon already. Uh, we are mo most of us working exclusively from home. Uh, some of us, like Emil, has gotten permission to actually stay at the lab to finish up his thesis work. Um, we're doing this podcast on Zoom. Um, so, I mean, when, my general question here really is, how are you coping with work and life in general right now? I mean, to me, I mean, I try to combine some kind of scientific 
position and keep to keep up doing work while at the same time having pretty pretty high amounts of anxiety around where this pandemic is going. Uh, and I'm also having to take care of two kids who most of the time have actually been home due to they, 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 due to that they have been like having a small cold. Uh, so let's start in in your end, Emil. How are you coping? Um, well, I mean, it's it goes from day to day, of course. I mean, uh, when this entire what do you say outbreak started, I remember that we discussed it a little bit, and uh, successively my anxiety levels have sort of increased ever since every day since that uh, discussion. And uh, right now, I'm feeling that it I think is kind of bad. Actually, it's, I think I'm, I'm, I'm having real anxiety over how this uh, development could occur here in Sweden and uh, of course in the rest of the world as well. Uh, yeah. Havila, what are your, your feelings? Yes, I'm highly anxious. <laughs> it is like barely I'm working, but it's hard to focus and concentrate. So I'm having a hard time as well. Yeah, I think this is something that we all struggle with, right? I mean, we, we are sort of expected to keep up doing good work. And at the same time, uh, we're having this, um, this like cloak of anxiety that rests upon you. And it's, it's hard to know because it's, I mean, I, I'm in a pretty good place here because we, we, we are settled in in a house. I have a family. We have, we have, I have people that who I meet every day. Um, and even though it's annoying to have the kids around, they are also a source of eternal joy yeah um so that i mean we're we're not in the worst position and i mean mm -hmm. sweden is not in the worst position globally either because we are not yeah. on the total lockdown we can still do normal things but to a much lesser extent mm -hmm. um but i i can totally feel i mean we we had this up uh, on our um, communication platform in the lab mm -hmm. just the other week like <laughs> what are the strategies that we can employ to just get through yeah um because it is hard it is really hard to to cope with both what you're supposed to do and having all these mm -hmm. other things on your mind that mm -hmm. will definitely steal your time and your um, your attention as well. Anna, do you have any strategies to share? How is your life right now? Yeah, I think the most difficult part is to wake up all the time and check the news and see these numbers that just keeps on rising. So it creates a lot of anxiety, I think. And it's impossible to uh, stay away from it in a way. You see it in all social media everywhere. Yeah. So it's quite... Um, and it's, I think, I think my wife put it pretty well uh, the other week, where she, where she said that I sometimes wake with this feeling like, oh, it's a new day. I'm awake. No, coronavirus is still here. This was not a good dream. <laughs> and I, I think that sort of it sort of nails it to me as well. I mean, it feels like we're living in this weird dream, and you're having this like dreamlike anxiety on top of you all the time. And then you, when you wake up in the morning, you realize that oh no, it's another day, and we actually have to stay in this for a couple of more <laughs> weeks or months. Uh, I personally, I tend to be convinced by numbers quite a bit. I mean, I my way of handling. Mm -hmm. uncertainty in my life has always been to try to get more data um, so I mean one of the things that I did when Swedish data started to be a little bit more solid was to put up a statistical model and just to be able to look at okay what does the trend look like right now and if you look if you look at the number of deaths that we have right now what does that say about infections 
three or four weeks ago. And does that mean, because that in the data on deaths and hospitalizations, uh, we can really now start seeing the effect of the interventions Sweden did in mid-March. Mm. Um, and very preliminary, but on a slightly positive note, it looks like it's actually working pretty well. Uh, we're not seeing this insane exponential growth in uh, hospitalizations that you would expect under a no intervention scenario. Mm. So even though the it's not, I mean, it's not a positive situation, there is definitely some light in the tunnel that the Swedish flattening the curve strategy might actually be working, despite that we haven't put in place as harsh measurements as Denmark and Norway. Although that has to be, to be fair to Norway, Norway's curve look even better than Sweden. But we're not seeing this kind of Ita Italian or Spanish-like total exponential growth, totally out of control situation. It looks like it's a bad, bad situation, but mm -hmm. slightly under control. And so that's what's my positive note on that, <laughs> is I think it, it also shifts your perspective a bit when your positive note is that it's really, really bad. <laughs> but at least it's not, on, it's, at least it's not out of control yet. <laughs> Well, with that said, I think it's time that we start diving into today's uh, collection of papers, and we will actually start on the on the same theme here, right? We yes. keep going with the coronavirus, and we will um, we will discuss the origins or the potential origins of this novel coronavirus that is formerly called SARS coronavirus two, uh, and we will discuss those origins based on its genome sequence, based on a paper published in Nature Medicine around two weeks ago. Emil, uh, would you take the lead on that? Yes, of uh, yes, of course I will. Thank you so much, Johan. Uh, so exactly like uh, Johan said, this is a paper. Uh, well, it's actually a letter to the editor, a correspondence, as it were, uh, to the journal. And uh, where uh, the authors of this particular letter makes the argument that uh, this particular uh, virus, which is the SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, the causative agent of COVID-19, uh, is actually a result of natural selection and not any of the other pot uh, potential theories that has been put forth. And uh, they make this particular argument, they make two uh, very solid arguments in this particular paper. Uh, the first uh, argument that they make uh, is that uh, they talk about the receptor binding domain of the spike protein, which is this protein that the virus particle uses to enter the cell. Uh, and the target of the spike protein is ACE2, angiotensin-converting enzyme 2. And this particular enzyme is present on many different cells on the body, but in the, uh, the cells of interest in the lungs are the type 2 noemocytes. Uh, and also there has been some implications in some other cells that they don't take up in this particular journal, but those cells are uh, the, uh, some cardiocytes in the heart and uh, some of the Sertoli cells actually in, uh, in the testicles of men. Uh, that could have some particular, uh, uh, particular uh, implications in fertility if you get this uh, infection. What the authors of this paper now talk about is that in this SARS-CoV-2, they compared the genome sequence of this spike protein. And they looked at some very closely uh, related sequences of other coronaviruses. Uh, I think they talked about bat coronaviruses, pangolin coronaviruses. 
which uh, they found a very big similarity between one particular uh, spike protein, which is the bat rat G13 and the pangolin uh, sequence. And they shared uh, six amino acid SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms. Uh, and uh, so wait, just to, just to make clear, when you say amino acid SNPs in this case, you mean SNPs that causes changes to yes, amino acids. Yes, yes. exactly, yes. exactly. Uh, that yes, exactly. Sorry. So a single point mutation that caused a a change in the amino acid sequence of the particular uh, the spike protein in this case. This occurred, uh, they saw this in this particular uh, SARS-CoV-2. This high mutation rate in this particular spike protein is, is the main way that coronaviruses actually enters new hosts. Uh, so that's how they get this huge, uh, as, what do you say, range of species. So uh, they have a higher mutation rate in this particular spike protein uh, in order to get to new hosts. So that um, is, the, is another argument that if this, if this mechanism already exists, it is, it is uh, plausible that this has happened once again just with another species, in this case, humans. If they had seen it already with uh, like pangolins and bats that they mentioned in this particular letter. And the, the other argument that they wanted to make is that uh, they wanted to really hammer down that this was not a laboratory-borne virus. Uh, that many had speculated in uh, uh, that there was some sort of either uh, bioweapons uh, used or a laboratory release. Uh, and they wanted to dismantle that particular argument. And they, they suddenly put forth this receptor binding domain of spike. And they also put forth uh, the S1 and S2 junctions, uh, which is one of the background genes, uh, which is needed to be cleaved in order to... Uh, actually get the virulent effect of this particular virus. And this background is consistent with the beta coronaviruses, uh, which is um, what SARS-CoV-2 is. And yeah, it, it's the family of viruses that they belong to, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. Maybe not family, maybe I wouldn't say family. I, 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 I the, know, the, I, I'm the, not the sure either, but I mean, yeah. The clade I don't or know, whatever the you call that. I mean, of, uh, they are yeah. genetically re related to the beta coronavirus, or they belong to the beta coronavirus. It's yes. sort of like the viral taxonomy. Yes, exactly. So it's the taxon of this particular virus. Um, and they, they, made, they made the argument that since they contain this background as well uh, uh, compared to all the other coronaviruses, that it has a source in nature and thus isn't laboratory born because if it was synthetic, it would have another genetic background. Yeah, I, I, I must say, I think that the, I, I'm not so sure about this second argument, how strong that is, because I mean, it essentially means that you could have selected another beta coronavirus or, um, uh, well, you could have selected a virus from the same family yes. and started with that. So, but I think they have a good point in the, these six um, amino acid changes that have to come together. Uh, the interesting thing there, I mean, to me, really was that those change those six amino acids are changed compared to I think it was SARS. Yes, SARS. Uh, um, SARS from one, yeah. Yeah. And so in this new virus, all of those six are different, but they are instrumental to be able to bind to this ACE2 protein. Yes. Um, and the interesting thing really is that if you would have engineered this virus 
uh, it would have been a really cumbersome way of making this enter the cells to change all of those six yeah. to a combination that would work instead of just using the one we know work from source. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or from the from the first source virus. So I think that's a pretty strong argument um, in in favor for that yeah. this is not the lab engineered virus. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, to some extent, that sort of feels like the big thing they want to yeah. convey with this paper. They are emphasizing it several times that yeah. this is not a laboratory-made <laughs> strain. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that that's I think that's the the message they want to hammer in. And one thing that I wondered a little bit about here uh, is really how different this virus is overall to uh, to this first SARS virus. And uh, do you have a, do you have an idea of that? Because I don't think they've never they've never really write about that in this paper. I haven't seen any 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 papers right. I mean, I haven't extensively looked at the, the similarities between these two uh, these two viruses. But uh, since they are of the same uh, taxon, I would imagine that they are quite genetically similar. That there might be some SNPs that differ differ between them, but uh, overall the genomes are somewhat similar. Yeah, because I, I now I, I'm really uh, just pulling numbers out of a hat here, but I think I read somewhere that the overall sequence similarity was above 80%, but 80% is still pretty low. Yeah, but I might actually be mixing this up with like some other coronavirus uh, other than SARS. Yeah. Um, I mean, from some, some standpoint, it's high, but it's also from the standpoint of being a lab engineered strain, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's a pretty big difference. I think there's another thing that is actually also very interesting in this, in the very, very at the very end of the paper, uh, where they talk about how this new virus um, could have been pre-adapted in another animal species, um, and in that case, if it's adapted in animals to being able to infect humans, then that could actually re-emerge. Even if we get the virus under total control and we eradicate all the cases. Yeah. That virus could still re-emerge from its animal source because we have no clue where it is. But in contrast, you could also you could also imagine the other scenario where this was um, not perfectly adapted for human transmission in animals and made the jump over to humans, and in humans became adapted so that it was more infectious and could better enter through this ACE2 receptor, for example. And if that's what happened we might actually be able to put an end to SARS-CoV-2 by just uh, stomping out all the infections we have right now in the world, which is hard. I mean, it's, it's not something that would be easily made anyway, but it's, it's an interesting philosoph philosophical perspective on that because e in, either, in the one case you say, it's possible to eradicate the virus. In the other case you say, well, wait a minute, if this is developed in animals, there's nothing preventing it from coming back from animals again. Yeah. And it could also make the jump again, I, I would imagine, from human to another animal host. Uh, and it could act as a, as a virus reservoir in that particular host or that, that population as well. So, so there's an idea of actually surveilling these particular viruses to see. So, so, uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry, I'm sorry for interrupting you. I, 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 saw, I, saw a, I saw a paper this morning, actually, uh, where they have been trying to infect different animals with this new coronavirus. And it's cool because they don't feel they don't get very efficient uh, infections in pigs they don't get very efficient uh, um, very efficient infection rates in dogs if they get any infection at all but what they actually do get infections in is cats and ferrets and also bats yeah 
Um, and I think ferrets were the ones that that had like the largest uh, proportion. I mean, after the time the experiment ended, I think it was twenty one days after infection, they had the largest amounts of virus still. So that sort of suggests that this is not only able to replicate, but actually it's doing pretty fine in many animals. So as as you touched upon, Emil, even if we get this eradicated from the human population, we might actually also reinfect animals with it. And yeah. that makes it even harder to mitigate this in the future. No, I don't. Uh, I Yeah, on that particular point that you mentioned on different, uh, those three particular organisms, I don't remember if it was this paper right now, but I think I read a paper that said that, uh, that exactly those three organisms were uh, predicted in a uh, in a docking simulation of um, when you do homology remodeling of the different days too, and you could see that the spike protein docked in uh, ferret, cat, and uh, bat. So bat, yes, that, yeah. So there is some sort of uh, homology between. Uh, are, are four organisms that would be so uh, human, bat, ferret, and cats, which could have some other implications as well. As well. So that's that's all pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I will I will by the way um, just say that we will also put up links to all the literature we're discussing here. Yes, of course. Uh, so that you could follow the, uh, follow our way of thinking, what papers we're actually talking about. May I just mention? Anna, what, yeah, there, I think yes. it's quite interesting since there was a paper. Uh, I saw circulating recently on social media, and it's from 2007. And it literally says that the presence of large reservoir of SARS-CoV-like viruses in horseshoe bats, together with the culture of eating exotic mammals in southern China, is a time bomb. And it's interesting that it was already in 2007 anticipated that it can create a lot of problems that we see now. Yeah. yeah. There was a similar paper actually published in January 2019 that raised exactly the concern that there could be a novel coronavirus emerging in probably China <laughs> because you had this reservoir. And I, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that scientists have been knowing since the SARS outbreak. I mean, when, when the SARS outbreak happened, it was, I think, 2003, I think. Yeah, 2003. Um, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, it's, this is... What we're seeing now is probably the worst healthcare crisis we have witnessed in our lifetime. At the same time, I mean, that's basically just because I was too young to consciously witness the HIV uh, and, and the AIDS spread before you got, a, you got AIDS treatment and HIV treatment. So, uh, but I mean, this is really the worst thing since that, but SARS was almost becoming this. Uh, and I think it's not entirely clear, I might be wrong here, but I think it's not entirely clear why SARS didn't spread more and why this new virus is really efficient in spreading. But I think it might actually be connected to SARS being slightly more deadly and having slightly more obvious symptoms. Uh, while the new coronavirus is not presenting as much symptoms in most people and then it becomes super severe for some people. Uh, which is a really, really smart strategy from the virus point of view. If this, if, if viruses were intelligent organisms, this is a really smart move from the virus side. Um, now, I, I lost track of exactly what we were talking about before. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was just that, I mean, it's, it's this kind of event, as you say, Anna, is something that has been predicted for such a long time. And it's still 
mostly forgotten. Uh, and, and, I, and it's not forgotten, it's, it's that it's been ignored. It's been pretty actively ignored by um, politicians that have power over healthcare systems, for example. Uh, so it, it's it is it is not really the it's it's not the bat's fault that we're having this problem. It's our own fault. We could have actually reacted on this much earlier. Yeah. So anything else that we want to bring up from this paper, Emil? Uh, no, I think we actually hit on all the points that I wanted to uh, bring up. I have I have one thing actually, which I I don't think anyone here can actually answer this, but it I think it's worth just throwing it out. Uh, they do this kind of estimate on when this virus, based on the genomes we have available for the new virus, they do this kind of estimate of when this virus could have emerged. When was the, uh, what they call the, the, the most recent common ancestor of all the strains we have sequenced. And they tend to date that back into late November to early December, 2019. That's what they write in the paper here. Uh, one thing that I wonder when I read that statistic, and I actually have no clue what the answer is to this question. But one thing I wonder is whether you get that timing because you're tweaking all the parameters so that you will end up with something that matches what we think is the right answer. Because, I mean, there is data aside from the genome sequences that suggests that this emerged sometime in November 2019. That's when you started to see the first weird cases of something that nobody know, knew what it was. And then if you look at, um, I think it's mid-December when they start to really emphasize that this is a novel pathogen. We don't really know what it is. It's probably a virus. That's when you have this Chinese whistleblower um, who starts talking about that this is SARS-like. We should really do something about this and getting punished for spreading so-called rumors. Um, and then I think China chimed the alarm bell with WHO in very late December 2019. I believe and, it was the 31st of December. Yeah, uh, it could have been the 30th as well, but it's, it's around that time. Yeah. I, I, I was looking back, I'm, I'm looking at this ProMed uh, email list where they send out disease outbreak information of all kinds. And I was looking back at this list and the first report is from December 30, uh, when they send out a request for information about an uh, pneumonia of unknown cause in Wuhan. So that's the first note on that list. Mm -hmm. But I realized looking back a little bit further that this, I mean, there's a lot of indications before that. And I read on CNN yesterday that US intelligence seemed to have known about this since November uh, and seen that this is a potential emergent threat to the US economy and the US society. So it's, it's interesting to see how, how this, the public perception of this virus has really been delayed for several months, yeah. um, despite that a lot of people seem to have been in the know. On the other hand, turning it around, I mean, we know, now know much, much more about this virus than we knew about SARS yeah. at that point, point, because we had the genome sequence so early. And I mean, so it's really complicated, just talking about the politics around this, it's really complicated because you have China on one hand playing it down early on, and not releasing information, but then also sharing the virus and sort of contributing to er eradicating it from China. So it's it's really, I mean, I think it's complicated with the relationship to China with respect to this virus in general. What in particular can we learn from this research? I mean, one thing, uh, if we actually uh, use this data from this paper to 
actually handle down the exact origin points, like in, for example, the, the previous host species, we can search their population to see how prevalent, prevalent is this virus in that particular population, and also hammer down the mutation rate that could cause a particular transfer event. And that would be really valuable if we want to screen additional uh, transfer events between different hosts in the future. Yeah, and I think the main take-home message here really is this was not yeah. a lab-made virus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's what they're trying so, to say. So, right? so stop, stop with the stupid lab-made viruses. This is a transfer event from a host in the nature. Yeah. Let's focus on finding that host so we can stop this from ever happening again. And I, I have a feeling that it's, you're not going to find a lot of disagreement about that in the scientific community. Probably not. I hope not. Next up on our agenda is uh, a paper that discusses the interactions between host and the, microbi uh, the microbiota of the upper respiratory tract in humans during influenza infection. So that's a short move from one respiratory virus to another one. Uh, this was a study that was published last month in the journal Microbiome. And I will take the lead on talking a little bit about that paper. So. Um, to cut a long story short, what they're doing here is that they have um, they have a number of patients. I think it's 37 patients uh, that is taken from a household influenza transmission study made in Nicaragua. Um, and they then look at the transcriptomes of these bacteria in, um, in these respiratory tract samples. And specifically, they're taking nasal and throat swabs. Uh, and then they look at the host transcriptome uh, in the blood. And, the, uh, and lastly, they also look at the 16S or RNA composition. So they can look at the species composition of the microbiota, and they can look at the host transcriptome, and they can look at the genes that the bacteria are expressing at the same time and, or from the same sample. Um, and they specifically look at taxonomic changes and, and um, how um, expression of antibiotic resistance gene changes. So this is this is something that is kind of in, it's interesting to the research we are doing because it deals with interactions between the host and the microbiota, uh, but it also deals with interactions between a virus and the host and the microbiota. And since we're also to some extent interested in disturbances, it has this kind of interesting disturbance event with the virus and how that affects the microbiota. So there's a lot of things that could potentially be interesting for our research in this paper. Um, and essentially what they find is that the interactions uh, between the host uh, response to influenza infection um, and the antibiotic resistance gene expression um, is to some extent impacted by this viral bacterial co-infection. Um, well, what I have to say is generally from looking at the entire paper is that there's a lot of ado uh, without actually being able to say so much in terms of solid outcomes. Uh, what they can say is that there is a difference between being uh, influenza infected and not. Uh, so that microbiota looks slightly different and it expresses different genes. Um, and that's not super surprising to me. It's good that someone has done that study, but I was a little bit disappointed with uh, how far they could take that conclusion. 
Uh, and one thing that I think that they do, which is slightly weird, um, if you if you can take a look at the figure one, they do a clustering uh, on the bacterial gene expression in this figure. And they find that you have two separate clusters, one that they call group one and one that they call group two. And within those two clusters, you have differences in what pathways are expressed. So far, so good. The problem with this approach really is that the, if you start looking at the clinical features of the individuals in those clusters, I can't see any pattern at all. Uh, I've been trying to sort this table that is available in the supplementary material of the paper back and forth in different ways to see if there, is there any correlation with age, is there any correlation with the number of antibiotics that they've been taking in the last year, is there any relationship to what type of influenza strain they're infected with, um, the, maybe the gender, but I couldn't find any predictor of these two clusters, which make me think that even though there might be some biology to this, it's going to be really, really hard to interpret what that biology means um, since it's just group one and group two, and we don't really know what those two groups represent. That said, they do find that there's a certain degree of interesting differences in the, gr in the group. For example, they have a sign pretty significant difference in number of ABC transporters or the expression of ABC transporters in one of the groups compared to the other one. And ABC transporter is one of those genes that are used, among other things, to export antibiotics. Um, but I'm still, I'm still, I still wonder a little bit how much we can derive from these two clusters. And they also find that these two clusters are largely driven by species differences, so that there are certain species that contribute a lot to this difference in gene expression, which also makes a lot of sense to me. But it's still not really explaining how that's related to anything else. And then what they also do is that they correlate um, antibiotic resistance gene expressions and bacterial taxa, and they find a number of significant correlations. But there's, there's also this thing where the actual correlation values are really small. So even if, yeah, that's probably an influencing factor, the amount of influence each of those single genera has on the uh, 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 antibiotic resistance gene expression is pretty minute, actually. Um, so there's a lot of things that is, well, interesting, but it's not super strong evidence for virtually anything in this paper. It also has this kind of general problem in microbiome studies that we cannot really know in what direction causality goes. So it doesn't really provide anything towards answering the question, is influenza causing bacterial responses that could potentially go via the host that changes these gene expression patterns? Or is it that the bacteria are influencing the host response to influenza? Which would have been a really interesting question to get at. But I don't think that they have any data that suggests one way or the other. Um, so there's a lot of interesting observations in this paper. But at the same time, I'm having a feeling that it's hard to do any big take-home message from it, aside from that the microbiota can actually have an effect on how their host respond to diseases. It's actually pretty cool that they don't find any systematic difference between the influenza strains they investigate, because that sort of indicates that there could be a common response to disease. And this, this paper provides way too little data to actually answer that question, but it leaves the, it leaves the door open to that uh, the microbiota might affect how diseases play out and how virulent diseases are 
much more in uh, much more like a general thing rather than a specific thing for every single <laughs> disease which which would be would be pretty cool but it's hard to say anything about it from this paper alone i want to read a, a sentence from the from the conclusion section before i i end my rant on this paper and that is that they, they end the paper with saying that both the host response and the microbiome can influence the risk of secondary bacterial infections because of interactions between potentially pathogenic bacteria and the commensals present in the respiratory tract. This analysis also suggests that the respiratory tract is possibly an important reservoir of antibiotic resistance genes in humans and should be further explored, especially regarding inter-host transmission of antibiotic resistance during influenza epidemics. And I think this is also interesting with the ongoing coronavirus outbreak, that if you have a virus that influences how the bacteria respond or stress in some way stress the bacteria either through the host which is actually the one thing that is suggested in this paper that the host response is also um, harmful to the bacteria uh, and that make them respond in like they are stressed so that could potentially mean that if you have a viral stressor or viral infection bacteria might respond in a way that's make them shuffle around resistance gene more. This is something that we have been seeing quite a bit in, in our studies in the lab, and that stress might not increase resistance per se, but it might cause more mobility of genes so that bacteria can share genes with each other, with each other to a higher extent. And maybe viruses could actually drive that, uh, even if it's not a bacteriophage, but a human virus. So I think that's a potentially cool finding coming out of this paper, uh, given all the caveats that I've just described with it. So is there anyone else who wants to jump on this, jump onto this paper? I mean, if that's true, that's really, really cool. <laughs> I mean, if you can actually like replicate this effect of uh, affecting the host to induce a shift of antibiotic resistance genes, and you can do like replicate this in like a mouse model, that could have some really like huge like implications if you've been like repeatedly having influenza throughout your life then i mean or for example if you get influenza and a secondary infection when you're if you're very old and very sick that could mean yeah i mean that could have huge implications that that would be a really cool test to see if you could do i think this secondary infection thing is probably the thing that stands out most to me in the paper that i mean if maybe the effects of the virus and the vector microbiota themselves are not that big, but even small changes could potentially be important when it comes to uh, secondary infections. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not intending to say that this is an unimportant paper. I'm just saying that, like many microbiome studies, it has this problem of not being very specific. Next up, uh, we will talk a little bit about uh, integrons and antibiotic resistance genes in bacteria from glaciers in Svalbard, Greenland, and the Caucasus. And this is a study that was published in January in Science of the Total Environment. Uh, Anna, you have read this in detail. What, is, what are your thoughts? Yes, so occurrence of antibiotic resistance genes uh, in the natural environments is now recognized as a quite a considerable threat to public health as well as ecological problem. 
And uh, there are plenty of studies these days that make profiling of uh, occurrence of antibiotic resistant genes in different environments, like ranging from commercial fields, uh, wastewater treatment plants to uh, human guts or wild animals. But if you would think about any place on the earth where antibiotic resistant genes haven't reached yet, what would that be? Like, I guess what first comes into your mind is some remote location, maybe with uh, rather low human activity or maybe some extreme conditions. So this paper tackles exactly this question. And uh, the idea is to look at the extreme environments, such as uh, polar areas and glaciers up high mountains, to see if we can find any antibiotic-resistant bacteria, genes, or integrons. And uh, these areas, until recently, they were considered sort of pristine, almost um, uh, sterile. But in fact, it has been recognized that uh, they also harbor a wide diversity of microorganisms, which mainly inhabit like a surface of the glaciers. But the hotspots of their diversity located uh, in so-called cryoconite holes. And those are reservoirs of water with dark sediments on the bottom. So this is a picture from the abstract. And this is how those cryoconite holes look like. I guess they vary in size, but in general, it's they contain water and some um, sediments. And they have been shown to have um, rather diverse microbial communities um, that change their functionality with time and space. However, uh, no one has ever done yet investigation of presence of antibiotic-resistant bacteria or genes or integrants in them. So. Uh, just a few words about integrons. Uh, those are constructs that have three parts. And um, uh, so they have uh, integron integrase genes in them, a primary recombination site, and a promoter that uh, drives transcription of the integrated genes. And what they do, they can incorporate gene cassettes and are responsible for multidrug resistance by uh, passing by this... Uh, genes by horizontal gene transfer. So um, profiling and establishing level of antibiotic resistant genes and integrons in uh, this environment is really important because glaciers are often source of downstream fresh water for both farming and household use. So the authors of the paper, they performed sampling in several different, different locations. Uh, that both range in terms of their uh, latitude as well as other conditions that can affect bacterial diversity and abundance. And they collected different types of samples, including ice, gravel, as well as um, cryoconite samples. And further on, um, they tried to culture this bacteria and look at the presence of uh, integral genes in them, as well as um, extracting metagenomic DNA to perform taxonomical identification of these bacteria living there. So when it comes to results, uh, the highest number of culturable bacteria possible to, uh, that was possible to achieve uh, was found from the Caucasus Mountains, followed by Svalbard. But uh, the interesting thing is that only 
the number of uh, culturable bacteria was four to, four to six orders lower that was estimated by 16S RNA. And that says like in many environments, um, bacteria from polar regions and uh, high mountains are really difficult to culture in the laboratory conditions. So when it comes to uh, screening of integrons among the culturable bacteria, uh, the authors managed to identify integrons of class 1. And surprisingly, if we have a look at the figure number 6, here we can see uh, the relative abundance of uh, integrons found in different environments. And uh, uh, the sample from cryoconate sample from Greenland shows up to 16%. There are no other um, studies that can be used as a reference of the abundance in the other glaciers. However, um, if we look at the abundance of um, integrons in other environments, such as, for instance, uh, wastewater treatment plants, it's only four per, up to 4%. So it is a surprisingly high abundance of uh, integrons in the glaciers. And the authors, they try to bring several different hypotheses of how this could occur. Since it is quite remote locations, uh, even though some of them are as a popular tourist uh, attraction sites, by studying the variable region of uh, integrons, they showed that these genes have resistance to um, several antibiotics, uh, such as aminoglycosides and um, trimetropine, which were also found, found in bacteria that is present uh, as a um, uh, commensal bacteria in the animals, such as uh, reindeers and boars. So quite possibly these uh, animals occasionally visiting glaciers, they leave feces, like on, this, on the figure five. Is this, is this essentially small pieces of poo? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, just to make sure what, what we're looking at here. So, <laughs> yeah. just, just for our listeners to know, we're actually now looking at the scientific figure that has photographed four different kinds of animal poo yeah. in snow. Nice. That's, that's what we're looking at right now. Yeah, and among, uh, yeah, on one of the figures here is bird's poo, and um, some of the integrons found in the samples from cryoconid holes they contain uh, beta-lactams and chlorophenicol-resistant genes, which are also commonly found in the intestinal samples of the Arctic birds. And those birds migrating, they uh, make stops at the commercial fields and maybe um, where they harbor these uh, antibiotic-resistant genes, further transferring them to the glaciers. Um, I think one of the interesting findings uh, of this paper was that uh, bacteria from Svalbard, they didn't, or integrons uh, from Svalbard, they didn't have any antibiotic resistant genes, but instead they had other um, uh, genes performing different physio physiological functions. And one of them is called chitin binding protein, uh, which exhibits a high affinity to chitin. And uh, also suggest that one of the um, uh, potential purposes of this is that the um, the food resources is so scarce in these environments that bacteria might use this protein in order to be able to adhere to um, other invertebrates, host cells of invertebrates, 
such as uh, tardigrades and rotifers that are very abundant in this environment. So sorry for interrupting you. What, what, where did you say that this was yeah. uh, common? Where, in which environment were these integrals without antibiotic resistance genes common? Uh, those are samples from uh, Svalbard. From Svalbard, okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, taking into account that there are several settlements on Svalbard um, with rather small population, but still. So to summarize, um, I think it's quite a surprising in a way uh, discovery that such remote locations actually also harbor antibiotic resistant genes and integrons. And uh, it shows the importance of uh, establishing the levels of these genes and um, yeah, to develop some measures um, to monitor them and assess possible threats. Very nice. I, I, I mean, I, there's a few things in this paper which I think is really interesting, and there's a few things that I think is um, complicating it a little bit. But I, I, I find it weird when I look at the figures that they talk about this relative abundance of, in, uh, of integrons in percent, uh, because what they really mean, if you look in, in the method section, is, is that this is the number of integrons per 16S gene, or yes. per bacterium, essentially. So it's a, it's a weird measure that they're using to call that this is percent. The first, my first thought was that, oh shit, they say that 18% of the DNA is just integrons. This is, this is obviously bullshit. Um, but then I realized that when you look at the methods section, they actually say that it is per 16S. So uh, I, I get a bit confused by just the numbering they use in this paper. Mm. Um, but it actually seems that the data is solid and I'm I'm really surprised about this high abundance in uh, two of the sample types they had in, in from Greenland and from Caucasus. It's it's a mind-boggling percentage, really, that you have uh, a copy or I mean, essentially it's a it's an integron copy in every six bacteria six bacteria, mm. um, and that is something that you typically don't see in any environmental samples. It's something that you can see in poo. It's something that we've been We've been seeing numbers like that in environments that have been subjected to pollution from pharmaceutical manufacturing, uh, so that you have um, loads of antibiotic resistance genes, and then we start seeing abundances of integrons that are, are approaching one copy per 16S sequence. Uh, so that's, but this is, I mean, it's, it's just a tenth of that uh, in an environment that is presumably almost entirely uh, unpolluted. So that I think is really interesting. And it's also interesting to see that these integrons are not carrying resistance genes, or at least not known resistance genes, uh, but rather are carrying completely different functions. So that's, that's another thing that is pretty cool about this. Um, yeah, I actually had a question on that note, if I may. Yes, absolutely. I, uh, so you, you mentioned a little bit about this chiting binding uh, uh, associated protein within the integrase, and you, you speculate. Well, you you said that the author speculated that it could be due to increased nutrients, but is it more nutrient rich in the like the Caucasus compared to Svalbard? I mean, like it, it feels like in the in the glaciers that there, everything should be low in low in nutrients, right? So why why would you have uh, a one area have a more nutrient based integrase and one would uh, have a more antibiotic? Um, antibiotic resistant uh, interface? Hmm, it's a good question. Um, 
I mean, one reason could be that uh, the area in Caucasus uh, might be quite touristy, so integrants occurring there uh, bearing antibiotic resistant genes might be co more common for that reason. Yeah, yeah. so it's just a, a, a question of circumstance. That, uh, yeah. So it's not a selective pressure, it's, uh, we, it's somehow how, how introduced by, uh, by either by some migratory organisms like humans or like birds as you mentioned. But it feels weird. <laughs> well, it might be also um, a rather big difference in conditions since Svalbard it's so high up north and uh, it's really a special uh, ecosystem there so uh, it's it's a tundra and not so much trees and um, maybe this environment is much less nutrient enriched than uh, if you imagine yeah uh, Caucasus area but I'm only guessing so yeah. But I think it's also worth it's also worth noting if you compare to figure three where you can actually see the distribution of the integrants across the samples. This is a bit complicated to see. You have to look in several figures to puzzle this together. But um, for the Greenland samples, you actually have a pretty consistently high number of integrants, while for the uh, gravel Caucasus samples, that's actually just two samples. And it's just one of those two samples that have a very high value. The other one has a pretty normal value. So I wouldn't exclude that for gravel, this could be more of a random effect that could have been due to something completely different. But for Greenland, it seems like this is really something that is happening. You do have a lot of integrons, even though, uh, though the abundance of integrons actually differs quite a bit in those samples as well it's high in every single sample there per 16S. So I think um, one should take the Caucasus results with a pretty big grain of salt, actually, but the Greenland results looks really solid. Yeah, I agree. So can I, can I just have a very conceptual question about this? Because this is one of those typical antibiotic resistance in the environment paper where they end by or start by saying that um, it's important to carefully monitoring the water originating from the glaciers because this could be a potential source of antibiotic resistant bacteria resistance genes and integrons and uh, special attention has to be given to areas where this water is used as uh, drinking water or for uh, or for farms um, but Given everything we know about antibiotic resistance, I mean, what are the actual risks here? Um, because very seldom these papers actually talk about why this is a risk. If I may just speculate, if, if, if I may. Yeah, I mean, uh, I in, mean the, in the absence of facts, please, please go on. <laughs> I mean, uh, if, you, if you, for example, get this, I'm just thinking, uh, in, uh, if you get them in like your drinking water, you could uh, allocate that particular gene into your particular microbiota so then you could hold in yourself a reservoir for antibiotic resistant genes that could for example be uh, picked up by some sort of pathogen that comes into your microbiome via some mechanism maybe i'm speculating i think i mean to some to some extent i think you're doing a pretty good argument uh, probably the best argument you could possibly make out of this but i think there's a weak spot in all this research that is not talked a lot about and that is really that if we're looking for things that are already circulating among human-associated bacteria and among pathogens, um, it's much easier for that resistance gene to just be transferred 
among the human-associated bacteria already, or for that pathogen carrying this gene to be transferred between humans, rather than having this route that where it would be deposited in a glacier and then moved by the drinking water in really low quantities, and then by some unlikely event recombine in your uh, in your intestines when you have been drinking the water. I mean, it's. I'm not saying that that's not happening. I'm saying that the magnitude of spread among human pathogens must almost certainly must be bigger. Um, and what I, what I sort of try to get at here, get at here is that, and what I think most papers fail to catch. And I don't know if this is something that is like, um, uh, that is sort of, if it's sort of like an unsaid thing that everyone knows and therefore nobody talks about it. But I, I I'm actually afraid that a lot of people haven't given a lot of thought to this. That is that I see this as a, as a proxy for resistance genes we don't know about. So if we have these resistance genes out in these bacteria, environmental bacteria that we know about and are being transferred around, and we especially this goes with the integrons, which we know can carry, carry around genes uh, quite a bit. If we know that, we can also expect there to be genes that we don't know what they look like, so we can't quantify them. Uh, but that could actually potentially be a more efficient resistant gene variant than what is present in human pathogens today. So I think that partially, I think the risk is that we recruit from the environment a new resistance gene that is more efficient than an old one. And that that recruitment event might actually take place in the human intestine, for example. So this is, this is what I'm trying to get at, that I think the real risk might not be these genes that we're detecting here, uh, the real risk might be the genes we can't detect with the current methods. Uh, and I think that's pretty important to think about when you're interpreting these kind of studies. So what you're saying is that this, this particular paper could like confirm that this could be a pathogen, but since we can't detect these potentially more devastating resistance genes, uh, then, then there's, this isn't like a viable way to screen for them. Or maybe I, I didn't quite understand your... No, I mean, I, I think this, this could be a viable way to screen, absolutely. Uh, the, the thing that I'm saying is that maybe these genes are not the, re the real big risk. Maybe, maybe they are just a proxy or uh, they function as, an, as a reporter yeah. for something we can't see. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of what the distinction is. I mean, in terms of what you're actually practically monitoring for, it doesn't really make a big difference, but it makes a big difference in terms of what type of mitigations you would do based on that. Uh, so that's that's my concern about that. Yeah, I think it's. I think this is a nice paper. It's a. It it has this interesting connection to non-polluted environments and then looking at what integrons could be uh, could be used for aside from just shuffling around antibiotic resistance genes which relates quite a bit to research by um, uh, Michael Gillings in Australia who's been studying integrons for a long time Anna do you want to add anything as a, any final thoughts on this paper um, no I think uh... Except uh, I feel like there is no uh, any place on the earth that doesn't have any more uh, pristine environment without antibiotic resistant genes. <laughs> but that, that's an interesting point, right? I mean, like, what is a pristine environment? I mean, are there any environments that on earth that haven't been touched by humans? Uh, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so is there, is there a, a, a value in actually defining pristine? Um, 
I, I, I think we should leave that question sure. open. Sure. Actually, <laughs> it's a very long, it's a very long <laughs> discussion potentially. Um, so maybe maybe this is a discussion for a future pod. Sure. Uh, what what is in pristine environments? It's a very <laughs> tough question, to answer. <laughs> especially in these days of globalization. Mm. And, and by the way, has anyone seen any COVID nineteen cases in Antarctica yet? I guess that's. I think I saw one in Greenland actually when I looked up at the uh, John Hopkins. Uh, Greenland is not Antarctica. So. That's true. But, <laughs> right. I know. I, I'm a biologist. I don't know maps. I mean, that Greenland, Antarctica, that's the same, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, should we should we move on? Sure. we're going to discuss uh, a completely different subject, which is how we can use pathway analysis and of blood gene expression to better understand the progress of Alzheimer's disease. And this is a study that was published in Neurobiology of Aging last year. Havila, what do you have to say about this paper? Yeah, I have a lot to say about this paper. <laughs> yeah, uh, so as we know, like they're working on this Alzheimer's disease and Alzheimer's disease is a common form of like memory loss for old aged people. Here they are like uh, trying to find a way which is easily accessible, which is not like uh, expensive. All the biomarkers that have been in the market right now, they don't, they don't really tell or like they can't really identify in the initial stages of the disease. So they are uh, trying to find out something that can be easily accessible to people as well as something that can uh, they work with. Here they have taken like uh, three subjects, which is a healthy subject that is control and the mildly cognitive impaired, that is a preclinical stage of Alzheimer's disease and the Alzheimer's disease. So these three subjects have been their main criteria. And then uh, when we go into details, they have uh, also taken like, uh, instead of uh, single genes, they have considered the data sets that they can work with and they those they have been like uh, taken like two ba batches of data sets from GEVO and then they have uh, if you can see in table one they have given the different characteristics of the data sets they have used the number of the subjects they have used the age the mean the minimum initial things that we need when we are working with the data set they are actually trying to uh, build a model based on the paper Johnson et al. 2007. And it can be seen in uh, figure number one, where they have like uh, combined the both gene expression data sets they have taken in the beginning. And then they have divided it to both uh, training set and the test set. And here, you, uh, if you can see, there is a pathway analysis training and the pathway analysis uh, testing in the figure one. The pathway analysis uh, training set is like to construct the pathway analysis uh, model and the test set that you can see is like for constructing the pathway scores for every training subject that they consider. And if you go into details, they have uh, instead of uh, considering one uh, particular pathway, they want to compare with two other methods. The main model they have constructed is based on the LDA, linear discriminant analysis, and they also want to uh, compare with other two models, which are the plague, that is the pathway analysis of gene expression and the gene-based. In table number two, they have taken 
Alzheimer's disease subject versus a control and the preclinical stage of Alzheimer's disease versus control. And they have uh, considered the minimum or the initial evaluation that they need to do, which is accuracy, AUC and sensitivity and specificity. When they have com uh, compared their model with the other two models, how it works out, which one is the best one to work with. As you can see, the accuracy is higher for LDA in all the comparisons like AD versus CTL and also MCA versus CTL. And then they want to uh, consider the which are the top pathways that they can see with or they can actually work with in order to know the top pathways that they have uh, that they can work with it is seen in figure number three where they have uh, done a parallel coordination plot but the nine pathways codes they have found interesting to be and then you can see in the plot number one which is the ad versus ctl there you can see all the pathways have a higher number of codes other than the first one that is plasari and the fifth one gossman and if you see in the second plot, all the, uh, that is MC, MCI versus uh, control, all the first five have the higher pathway scores and the, all the other three don't have. So they want to work on those and want to see how uh, each pathway is like interdependent or which pathways have a independent way of working or uh, which pathway has a large number of genes. And in order to know that, it's in uh, fig figure number four, where they work with the percentage of genes in the overlap between the nine pathways the figure number four is for ad versus ctl where you can see the all the overlaps which are very minimal and if you consider the figure number five for mca versus ctl you can see a large number of overlap between pathways which indicates that this pathway has a large number of uh, connection and it's not independent and at the end, they, they say that like the LDA, path, based on all the figures and the results they have obtained, they say that the LDA pathway is more efficient than the other two pathways. And they also identified which pathways have the largest number of genes or correlated with each other. So essentially, this is a, an evaluation of three different approaches to pathway analysis, yes. right? Yeah. So not being an Alzheimer's expert in any mm. way. I've been I've been looking quite a bit on the method methodology here mm. because it's something that I think would be interesting to apply to to what we're doing in yeah. microbiology, and lo looking at the differences here. I mean, what what is what is it that makes LDA a better method than the other two? Would you say? Based on the accuracy, you can see like it has the highest number of accuracy in uh, figure number two. If you consider the box plot, you can see that one has a higher number rather than the other two. And also in the table two, where they consider the different level of uh, minimum evaluations they do. And the, the LDA has a better one when compared with the other two. And then... So, uh, well, I was wondering, is, is there a reason from a methodological point of view to, to think that LDA should be better than the other options? Uh, I think... Uh, they wanted to compare with both and see instead of like just designing a model and working with on it. So they initially have designed a model and then they wanted to know if this model is really good when compared with other two. So they compared with the other two and then they got to know, okay, this is much better than the other two and it's good to work with. One thing that I, uh, mm -hmm. um, that I sort of wonder about mm -hmm. here, I, I am not, as I said, I haven't read this yeah, yeah. paper in detail now, but, but, one thing I wonder here is because you're using this linear discriminant analysis, mm -hmm. LDA, mm -hmm. uh, which is a 
technique to reduce dimensions, dimensions. in a similar mm. way to PCA, mm, yes. but where PCA, and I'm going to describe this in a way that might be slightly inaccurate, but I try to get a, get around to to make it explainable. Mm. So what PCA is trying to do is that it looks like a, it looks at a large cloud of dots mm. in multi-dimensional space. So you have to imagine much more than three dimensions here, uh, and then it tries to project those so you get the biggest possible separation between the dots, mm. so that you get. Um, you get them as spread out as possible in two dimensions. Mm. That's the goal of a PCA mm. analysis. Um, the difference here is that LDA uses the information on which sample groups your samples were in. Yeah, and it tries not, mm. yeah, it, it tries not to make the biggest possible separation between all the dots. Mm. It wants to separate the groups as much as possible yeah. so that you will be able to see like a cluster of red dots mm. here, a cluster of blue dots mm. there, and a cluster of green dots there, yeah. so that you get this kind of spreading out of them. The problem with that is really that it's it's kind of easy when you work with multidimensional data to mm. turn the camera in mm. such an angle, so to speak. Mm. Now you have to think that this is much more than three dimensions. So you're actually in a room with say 200 dimensions. Oh, if that sounds weird to you, mm. well, welcome to science. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, so you, if you think about it in three dimensions, what you're doing is that you're moving the camera so that you get the largest possible separation between the groups. Mm. But since you have so many dimensions in this case, mm. What you can do is that you can always get a good separation of the dots, or almost always. Um, the, diff, the, the important thing to keep in mind when you're doing something like that is that you have to you have to compare that to if you get a better separation than you would get good get by just randomly assigning mm. uh, labels to all the uh, all the data points. So, I mean, you have to see, is there an effect that is significantly, do you get a, a significantly better mm. separation using the uh, actual uh, sample type labors, labels compared to just using random mm. labels? Um, so that's one thing that I wondered if they have been doing in this method, uh, which is not completely yeah, clear yes, to me. Yes, it's the same. With you have done no. that? I no, mean, no, like, no. it's not visible. And, and I mean, to some extent, since they do get better performance of this method, mm -hmm. I guess it works. Yeah. <laughs> they must be, you must be doing something right. Uh, but I think this is a, this is, is a general thing just to keep in mind when you're dealing with this kind of multidimensional mm -hmm. data, that it's sometimes quite easy to generate a nice looking figure, mm -hmm. but that might actually have no biological significance whatsoever. <laughs> Um, it's it's the same with the technique called OPLS, which also has this kind of kind of basic goal to def define groups in a big data set. And I don't know exactly how they've been doing it here, but I can I can see that what they get out in the end is better than other approaches. Mm. So apparently, it seems to be working. <laughs> so, Havila, do you think that this is something that we would be able to to put to use in our research? I thought so as well, but I think I need more data. If I want to like reproduce this thing. They have given yeah, me like little information, but I actually chose this pathway analysis uh, paper because we are working on it and I thought I might get some info from what they are doing. And it's uh, nice to see like, okay, this pathway is working and they have the dependent and these are independent. So yeah, I get an idea about how we will get the data in future. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a good example of how you can take an idea from a completely different field mm -hmm. and translate it into 
uh, into what you're doing. So I, I, I like the overall idea of this. Uh, I, I think we, we, we can probably make a follow-up on our, on our next pod on whether this actually works for us or not, right? Yeah, we know that. <laughs> so that's great. Um, what else do we learn from this paper? Does anyone want to, do, does anyone want to look, add something from this? I just want to very quickly add that they make the cardinal sin of abbreviating their control as CTL and not CTRL. And that disturbed me so. Yeah, I also wondered the same. What is a CTL and then what is a control? Okay, they have a weird yeah, way I was, of I, I naming really, it. I just, that disturbed me so ungodly much when I read through the article. We're about to wrap up, but real quick, we have one more bonus paper for today, right? And that's that's because we quite recently, uh, in November last year, we had a novel, not only a novel species, we had a novel genus described at our department. Um, so, and this is um, colleagues we work very closely with. We share lab with some of those people on this uh, on this paper. So we, it's people we know quite well. Uh, so, Ima, do you want to say something? Do you want to say something about this exciting new study? Uh, it's very cool. Uh, we found a new uh, a new bacteria in my hometown uh, of Kunga, which I which I just thought was very cool. Uh, so, I've been to that hospital. A few times. Yeah, so so could you just share the news with the world? What's the name of this oh, bacteria? Yeah, because I really don't want to say this name. <laughs> okay, it's Scandinavium Gothenburgense. And there you heard uh, it from Gothenburgian. <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> official. Yes, so it's uh, it's a new it's a new uh, member of the Anterior Bacteriaceae uh, species, uh, and it uh, it was found in a thirty eight year old patient of of the Kungälv University Hospital, uh, which is the big hospital in that particular hometown. And uh, the authors of this paper uh, they found it via a new some new next generation sequencing methods, uh, which which they used. Uh, whole uh, whole genome sequencing in order to find uh, particular regions of interest uh, that weren't just the 16S ribosomes. They also found some new uh, virulence factors. And when they looked more into the specific homology of this new hypothetical virulence factor factors, they found uh, some uh, hemolysins. They found uh, type four secretion systems. But most interestingly, they found a quinolone uh, resistant gene, a new quinolone resistant gene, which is uh, one of the major uh, antibiotics that we use in the clinical setting, which is ciprofloxacin. Uh, so what they did is that they, they cloned this new gene of, uh, which I think they named Q, uh, let's see, what did they name it? QNRB96, a very, yeah, so very actually, So actually to be perfectly clear with the nomenclature for this gene family here, it's, and that the QNRB96 would actually be the 96th D yes, gene QNR. of the QNRB subfamily of the QNR yes. family of resistance genes. So it's, yes. I mean, it, it, it is a novel gene in terms of that this exact sequence has not been observed before, but it, it yes. belongs to a known family of resistance genes. So yes. it's, yes. it's, it's it, we, we shouldn't overstate uh, that yes. it's all oh, completely novel. It's something that we could sort of have expected to find at some point. But it's, yeah, it's, yeah. I, I, I agree, it's cool. It's, it's a new gene. Yeah, it's really cool. And uh, also the thing that I found that was really interesting is that they cloned this gene into E. coli, just this particular gene, uh, put it under a constitutive promoter, 
and they got a five to eight fold increase in resistance against ciprofloxacin just by this particular this one gene, which is super cool. <laughs> this is this is what Emil is dreaming about at night, <laughs> picking up one of those genes that would give five times oh, more resistance. <laughs> Oh, if only I could find that. Please, <laughs> please let me find if that. If only I could get my experimental system to work at all, I would be happy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even get me started, man. <laughs> no, but I, I think it's. I think it's really. I mean, it's cool. It's. Um, uh, I think the. The, the part with the uh, novel resistance gene is something that I'm almost used to by now because I, I've been working uh, with Joachim Larsson quite a bit. Uh, we discovered a bunch of novel QNR resistance genes. Um, in a bioinformatics study, just studying loads of genomes and metagenomes and uh, having a computational model predicting new genes like that. Uh, so to some extent, I'm like, yeah, okay, it's a new QNRB. I've been, I've been seeing that before, but I mean, of course, it's really cool. It's something that is actually functional as well. So, well, I mean, like the thing is like if the difference, well, I mean, now I don't, I haven't read your particular paper when, which you reference here, uh, over that you of your previous work, but they did it both using this homology method of the NGS uh, whole genome sequencing, uh, but they also did it uh, actually in, in vivo as well, in order to actually confirm. Yeah, but that's, uh, that's, that's what we've been doing for a lot of the, oh, uh, the okay. QNR genes as well. So we know that oh. maybe, I, I can't remember, it may be 30% of the genes we tested and, uh, and out of those, okay. it's, say 80% were functional. I'm making okay. the numbers up, but it's, right. that, that's, that is the order of, and it's, it's, right, it's in that range at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think it's cool. I mean, it's it's something that it, it's important work to get to know how big the diversity is of the of these yeah. resistant genes as well. Um, I wonder at what point we will have good enough and quick enough sequencing to actually put this into clinical practice, so that it would actually be useful to sequence a bacterium, and then you would know that okay, this is what we're yeah. going to treat it with. Um, yeah. And that's something that is coming, but it's taking it's taking I mean, time to get it cost cost wise feasible. I mean, like, I, I know that we do it in like with when it comes to like chronic infections. So if you, if you get like the peritoneum infected, you could you could do some NGS uh, yeah. stuff in order to do like if if you have like a polymicrobial infection of the peritoneum, you could get some yeah. uh, information from that. But when it comes to just like wound infections or infections that don't last that long. Currently, it's not feasible to no. do uh, NGS of uh, no, and it's also. Year. I mean, it's. I know that people have been doing it with mycobacterium infections as well. Yeah, because exactly. it's something that exactly. is extremely slow growing. So if you're going to cultivate those to see the resistance patterns, yeah. you lose yeah. a week. And uh, it's also really, really hard. If I remember correctly, with growing mycobacterium, it's not yeah. entirely. Yeah, just we will probably have, the, we'll probably have reason to come back to this uh, yes. in a future poll as well. Because this is an exciting development uh, from for microbiologists working close to medical settings. We're about to wrap up. Um, thank you for being here, all of you. Before we end, I would just like to uh, quickly ask you: We're, I mean, we're about to celebrate Easter. At least some of us will celebrate Easter. I mean, but we're also having really weird circumstances, as we said in the beginning of this pod. How are you going to celebrate Easter now in, when you're on a partial lockdown? Uh, we're watching YouTube home, videos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to celebrate. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, you too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man, I've, I've, I've seen this new Netflix series called Tiger King. It's really nice. <laughs> we can all, you can always like uh, uh, go back and watch 
um, what is it called? A Contagion, the movie Contagion, mm. uh, yeah. That's oh, the, which is which is pretty much describing what yeah. we're, we're living through right yeah. now. <laughs> Although in Contagion, the virus is slightly more deadly. Yeah. Uh, mm. Otherwise, it's a very accurate description mm. of the Corona mm. times. I think you could you could also play the board game Pandemic, I guess. <laughs> uh, also. <laughs> an on-theme activity. We were supposed to have my parents coming here uh, from Uppsala, but I mean, yeah. they're stuck where they are and we're stuck where we are, so I guess we'll FaceTime quite a bit. Yeah. So I guess with that, we start wrapping up. Thank you for being here, all of you. It's been great talking to you all. Thank you for bringing these super interesting papers and uh, bringing your opinions on, on them. Uh, we'll be back again in May with more discussions on science and life in academia and hopefully some more insights on how to survive for another month in Corona times. Uh, but until then, take care of each other, take care of yourself and stay healthy. Thank you. This podcast was produced by the Bengton Palma Lab at the University of Gothenburg and was recorded on April 9, 2020. If you want to reach out to us with any comments or suggestions regarding the pod, please send an email to podcast at microbiology.se. We can also be reached via Twitter using the Twitter handle at Bengtson Palma as a single word. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the pod.